If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, welcome to the latest Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On today's show, we will talk to golfing Hall of Famer Gary Player, a man I just slammed the hammer to the week prior. And my vote for the new Dos Equis, most interesting man in the world. But we will get to that. We'll talk to him about his lifelong. <laughs> we'll talk to him about his lifelong passion for horse breeding and horse racing. And we will go deep on the art of hazing in sports, which raises many serious questions about. Oh, just kidding! Air raid pledges get on the ground. We'll also slam some hammers, <laughs> give you some distractions, and so much more. I am your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer. Again, not in Chicago this week. I am actually in Los Angeles recording this on some old equipment I found behind Bill Simmons' house. No Adam again this week. We do have our other fearless co-hosts on hand. In Brooklyn, it is our seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer, Gareth Hughes. Gareth, what is the most recent record you purchased? Uh, the most recent, I don't know. I tend to buy them in chunks, but the most recent record I played and it is still sitting out on our hi-fi system is Van Morrison's Astral Weeks. Uh, maybe one of the most beautiful albums of recorded music ever made. Highly recommended to everyone. I tried to get the entire family to sit down last night and listen to it and it was interrupted. We got through about half the first song, and then my daughter went to poop, and then my son asked to watch the Magic School Bus, and then we had to. <laughs> it all went downhill from there. So we got through about half a song. Yeah, dude, you're trying to have your family sit down and listen to music like it's not 1927, man. If it's not blasting out of a phone, good luck. Oh, but man, like you should. Music is something you should sit down and give attention to. It should be something that like John Coltrane should not be background music. That is music that you should actively listen to. Van Morrison's Astral Weeks is so beautiful that I was I was trying to create that moment for my family. Look, I will admit when those sorts of things fail, when I played Machine Gun by Jimi Hendrix for a 14 month old Wiley. He was not ready for that. <laughs> so, just, well, my daughter, I know what I lose. My daughter is liking Alexi Lalas's rock uh, canon, which I continue to play for her post-Alexi Lalas interview. Also with us, likely just now discovering 1990s music for himself, it's our 40-year-old millennial, our tireless producer, Mr. Joe Reed. Joe, on that note, what is what is the last 90s pop song or, or song that you've discovered or band that you've discovered that you you've gotten into oh my gosh the last 90s band i've gotten into since you're a since you're an early um, early 20s guy rediscover discovering the, discovering the 90s retrograde what what's something that you've you've found recently did you run across like a toadies album on someone's chair and just pop it in and and, and find possum kingdom Oh gosh, I'm trying to think of what I've listened to lately. Um, 
Uh, I mean, this band was popular in the 90s, but they were also popular before the 90s. Uh, I went on a recent Fleetwood Mac binge. Does that count? No. <laughs> nice. No. Rumors. That's like... <laughs> That that is not a '90s band <laughs> like that. The, I know it's not, but I don't know. I'm trying to think of like a, a new band I've discovered from the '90s. I don't know. That's like I saying, can't think of anybody. That you might as well have just said John Coltrane. I mean, seriously, Joe, what are you doing? Exactly. Um, to, uh, Gareth will love it. Yeah, I've been listening to a lot of Billy Joel. He's from the '90s, right? Oof. Uh. <laughs> River of Dreams is from right, the we're 90s. Have a history lesson <laughs> you know. before too long. All right. Moving on. <laughs> before Gareth and I get angry. On this show, we don't just invite people on. We go public with our invitations. We call this process slamming the hammer because we lay down the law on folks who have brought up a passion, an interest, and therefore should join us on Just Not Sports to go deep about it for your benefit. So Gareth, let's start with you. Who do you want to slam the hammer to this week? Uh, this week, I want to slam the hammer to former New England Patriot and now New England Patriot broadcaster Matt Chatham, who, when I started, honestly, my first job in television was logging tape for the New England Patriots. And I logged all the sideline footage of their 2003-2004 season, um, including the Super Bowl. And so I got sideline unseen stuff of the Super Bowl, like NFL film style. And one of the clips that I loved was Matt Chatham decking a guy who came running onto the field in a ref costume, took it off, and he was wearing a casino, like worldcasino.com or something like that on his chest, was written on his chest. He came running up to Matt Chatham, and Matt Chatham just decked him. And so with having a couple high profile incidents recently of people running on the field, Kevin Harlan's famous call, et cetera, et cetera, I would love to talk to Matt Chatham for a player's point of view on what goes through your head when you see a nut job running on the field and what's it like to make one of the biggest tackles of Super Bowl 38 against a Yahoo wearing a jockstrap and nothing else. Gareth. You, you've spent a lot of time on the field during games with your job and, and with the Patriots and then later, you know, CBS. Did you ever have you ever spotted someone about to go like and just, you know, thought about trying to jump run out there and do it yourself? <laughs> that would be awesome. Like not. not, not it's a, that's actually a good question. Them. I have not. I've never seen uh, that moment when it's about to happen. Um and I've never seen somebody run on the field live. So what I would say, based off your question, is what always comes in my head. It is interesting and fun to watch a football game from the field, and I would recommend doing it once, but it is a terrible place to watch a football game. So <laughs> Noted. You don't see anything. You just see like guys running at you, and they're enormous, and then you think, ah, shit, I got to move. So. <laughs> yeah, I hear. I don't like being low at sporting events. Um, okay, that's sports. Joe, who do you want to slam the hammer to? All right, this is more of a sort of show-related um, idea. I'll slam the hammer to us to maybe try this in the future. I'm I'm mixing it up. Um, so I th- slammed the hammer last week to Tim Tebow, who is 
you know, trying his, uh, his best at baseball. And we were texting, uh, us guys about dual sport athletes. It was one idea that, you know, had come up in our text chat and I liked this idea a lot. I liked the idea of maybe talking about obscure dual sport athletes, uh, maybe like ranking them, like who are sort of the most iconic ones or who are sort of ones you've maybe never heard of. Gareth mentioned Bud Grant, who was, um, the NBA and the NFL, which I just, I guess I didn't realize that someone had crossed over between those leagues. I also like the idea of breaking down why maybe certain like what sports would pair well together. Like if you're really good at this, you'd also be good at this. Um, And then potential athletes like who is a current athlete like a Tim Tebow um, who would excel at like a second career? Um, You know, maybe they're uh, great at golf. Steph Curry is going to like go on like the pro-am tour after he retires from the Warriors. I don't know. But I just like this idea of uh, dual sport athletes. Maybe we have one on, maybe we break it down. That's all I got. Let's get Brian. Love it. On, you know, actually we, we should get Bo Jackson on the show. I, I worked with Bo Jackson's son briefly. Adam and I worked with him at uh, my old job. We should absolutely talk to Bo at some point as I, I do believe that if Bo Jackson had stayed healthy, he had a chance to be a hall of famer in two sports, which is just sounds ridiculous, but it's totally true. Right. Yeah. It's uh, it sounds unbelievable. You know, what what makes you what from this sport allows you to transition easily? Is it just pure athleticism or like we're talking Wait. about like what is that Wait. shift going from here to there? All right. What? Let me let me jump in. <laughs> could we could we by our own standards talk about that? Like could if Bo Jackson came on the show, I would ask him anything but about his Hall of Fame credentials. I was going to say we'd have to talk to him about hunting and beef jerky. Yeah. Yeah. We just do it on like an opposite day episode or you find a different angle in. You don't talk about, you know, this, maybe the sports themselves, but like, um, I don't know. Why did, why did you jump from one to the other? What was the transition? Like, I feel like you could remove it a little bit from like the on field or like on court, uh, happenings. I don't know. It's just a thought. Also some, how to the sausage, some, also some inside baseball on just not sports. We've been talking about doing an opposite day episode for 52 weeks, one year of this show, <laughs> and we have never come close to doing it. So, Joe, you, you, when you just dropped a casual, we'll do it on an opposite day as though like every third episode, we just rock one of those out uh, to our listeners. Uh, I love it. That is in the deep trenches of the pipeline uh, right now. Yeah. Yeah, who who knows when that'll happen, but uh, it's coming. Just 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 keep waiting. All right, mine is I guess a little opposite day esque, so I have to <laughs> make fun of myself for that. Yeah, take your own medicine, Brad. Right. So I'm in the <laughs> airport heading to to Los Angeles, where uh, you know, I'll be at the ESPNW summit on um, women in sports, and I start messing around on my phone. I remember one of the scenes. I think I saw something on Twitter. That was a meme using "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia," and I and I I kind of clicked through, ended up on the show's Wikipedia page. Mind blown! That show is still on the air. Uh, one of my one of my favorite shows when I first discovered it. I think it must have been oh five oh six, like the very earliest seasons. And then I just kind of lost track of it. Uh, didn't really go back to it. But still rocking after eleven seasons. That's two more than Seinfeld. Uh, which is just insane to me. So I was thinking we should have, you know, one of the principals from the show on, or maybe a couple of them, 
to talk about the role that Philly sports has played in that show. Uh, it's it's Ooh, yeah. it's one of the, it's one of those sitcoms that, like Sex and the City, I think people look at and say, "Well, the the city is actually a character in this show in itself," uh, which I always kind of think is a lame trope to trot out when you're talking about you know television criticism. But they have made quite an effort to to weave the Phillies and the Eagles and and fan culture in you know in Philadelphia into the the fabric of the show over the course of its eleven years. So. I, I think it'd be interesting to talk to the creators now that they're probably nearing the end of their run. Uh, although, who the hell knows? Maybe they're going to do like a Simpsons-esque <laughs> streak here. Uh, but I'd love yeah. to talk to them a little bit about their thought process on Philly sports and and maybe some of the most memorable moments that they've they've had guys on. I, th- I think Chase Utley was in an episode once. I think Ryan I it, Chase been. Utley had a whole subplot. Um, one of my favorite episodes, I think that show was one of the funniest shows I've ever seen when it was funny and when it was bad, it was so bad. Um, but I love it and I love that show and I love the run they've put together. One of my favorite episodes is the gang gets invincible where they all go try out for the Philadelphia (laughs) Eagles. And that is awesome. (laughs) Those are our hammers. We've got a pack show. Let's let's get into it. Gary Player, guys. Gary Player. I had to do this interview myself just due to time zone issues, busy weeks. I got to be honest, man. Gary Player was inspiring. He is over 80 years old, was like yelling into the phone and, you know, just with energy <laughs> and passion, inspiration. A guy who who is challenging 30-year-olds, like who can go deeper into the gym or who can go harder at the gym. A guy who openly talks about weeping with uh, with fellow world leaders and and his you know former friends and rivals, a guy who's got a story and an anecdote and an opinion about everything. It was a joy to talk to. I think if you if you're listening to the show and you don't like golf and you don't like the idea of oh hey what what's an 80 year old golfer gonna have to say to me, I would just encourage you to stick with this. You're gonna love this guy. I mean he is an amazing figure in sports. And someone we are so pleased to have had on the show. And someone I have no doubt would whip us on a bench press tomorrow and back up his claims that he is going <laughs> to crush some 30-year-olds at the uh, at the 24-hour fitness place. If it was us three, he's got a, he's got a shot. Yeah. Right. Actually, I, I was depressed that Adam wasn't on that call because I think those two would have gotten really into, like, workouts and stuff. But uh, anyway, whether you like golf or not, stick around. Gary Player, super inspirational guy. I was going to ask you, I mean, you're arguably the world's most traveled man. Uh, where are you calling from today? I'm calling from Florida, uh, down in West Palm Beach. Um, is there a destination? I have to ask this because my wife and I are, 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 you know, we love to travel. We don't get to do it as much as we used to. We have a, we have a young child and another one on the way. But are there, are there any locations you would suggest to our listeners as... Um, hid, hidden gems, if you will, places that you may not have heard about, but you just have to try once in your life? There are places probably that uh, uh, I would still like to try. Obviously, there's uh, uh, lots of new places in the world, but really for your listeners, the greatest place <coughs> your listeners can have a vacation, without a doubt, is South Africa. 
You have this incredible climate. Uh, you have these magnificent game reserves. I mean, you've never lived until you've actually gone into a game reserve and seen a lion five meters from you or an elephant five meters from you or a rhinoceros. And they have these magnificent accommodations in the game reserve as good or even better than a Ritz-Carlton hotel. And then you have these magnificent uh, beaches which have been voted the best in the world from the Cape Town down to Port Elizabeth. It's called the Garden Route. And, you know, they talk about a 17-mile drive in California at Pebble Beach. This is 1,000 miles of that 17-mile drive with these beautiful beaches and restaurants and highways uh, and great golf courses. I mean, you just go... And then you go down there. If you go down there with 2,000 American dollars, you get 28,000 28, for your 2,000. <laughs> I, can, I can agree with this. I went to South Africa with my wife in 2011, and it was our favorite place on earth. Uh, I can uh, attest to the beauty of the drive that you said going down to the point. Uh, we did a game reserve on the um, uh, over, I think it was it was Pumbaa Park, over closer to yes. um, the eastern yes. side of the country. Uh, we stayed yes. in Cape Town for several days. Beautiful. I mean, it, everyone was so lovely and wonderful. So uh, I can attest to everything you're talking about. <laughs> No, that's nice. Particularly when you go to two thousand dollars and you get twenty eight thousand. I mean, that's nice. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to dive right in. I've read you describe horse uh, the horse business very affectionately. I imagine as a disease, which made me think it's it's beyond a passion for you. Perhaps more of a compulsion uh, to be involved. So, how would you characterize your lifelong love of horses and this business? Well, first of all, um, I've had a long career of playing well. I won a golf tournament on the U.S. Tour at 63. Mm -hmm. um, I've been able to win more tournaments around the world than anybody else. And I think the reason being, A, that I've kept fitter than any other golfer that ever lived for a long time. <laughs> Absolutely. And secondly, uh, I have this passion for the thoroughbred racehorse. And what I've done... In between tournaments all my life, I've had this beautiful farm that I can go back to. I work on the farm. I'm not a gentleman farmer. I work, <laughs> I shovel manure, I mix cement, I carry poles, I drive tractors. <laughs> I, I get involved in the genetical side of the horse business. And what it's done, it's given me a diversion. You know, most people in business and sports, they get punch drunk with their business, punch drunk with their with their, um, their, well, they're with their business, and they forget about having another interest to get you away from that, to recharge your batteries. That's the word. Right. Now, I mean, you mentioned that you're not a gentleman farmer, and I was very impressed by this. You, you're not lying when you say you're out there shoveling manure, you're out there uh, clearing brush. Talk about a typical day for you when you're on your, um, your farm. I love to do projects, and right now uh, I've got a project where I've built my own golf course, which is 90% water-free, fertilizer-free, labor-free, and machinery-free. And really, honestly, if I, <laughs> I could save golf courses hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in maintenance because we're going the wrong way. The world is running out of water. 
fertilizer is not good for the soil, and so we need this desperately. But a typical day would be depending on the project. Right. The project is I've just finished nine holes in the mountains in amongst the wild animals, so while you're playing, you see all these wild animals. <laughs> now I'm on a project of building steps right to the top of the mountain. I've just finished. took me a year to do it with some staff. And I built golf tees at the top where you can shoot from there down onto the green. So if we have a tournament and we have a sudden death playoff, we've got to go to the top of the mountain and shoot to three different greens. Well, I win every single playoff because none of my friends can climb up the mountain with me. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine so. I imagine so. I mean, now, when you you bought the Gary Player Stud Farm, you know, back in the mid-'70s, and you said it back then it was... And this is in South Africa, your home country. This is, you said it was just wide open space. You had to basically build the whole thing up from scratch. So can you, can you tell us a little bit more about why you got into this, when you caught the, the, the bug for horses and what it was like to sort of get your particular foothold in this industry off the ground? My mother died when I was eight. And I had a friend that used to invite me to his, uh, his farm and we rode horses one day, and how I stayed on, I don't know, but we came back, we washed them down with water, and we took all the sweat off them, and I just realized that the outside of a horse is good for the inside of a man. Hmm. And I want to tell you, I've done a lot of different things being 81 in my life, but I've never had such excitement ever as working, and I've won all the world's titles. But I've never had excitement like working and, and breeding thoroughbred racehorses. To see this baby born, this, this foal come out of a, a tiny hole in a mother, and you watch this baby grow up, and you see the character of it. And it's the greatest athlete in the world. And then you see them compete. Uh, it's something, the beauty of it is quite unbelievable. And for children, children go crazy about horses. It's something about a horse that attracts children, and it's very important for children because there's a tremendous imbalance in the world today. Children live on a cell phone, they live in a city, they have no idea about nature, and nature is God, and it puts something into your soul that you can never describe. I love this country so much. I've got 15 American grandchildren, I've got three children that are citizens of America, and... uh, I just want to see a a better education. That's so, so important. And uh, also for children to get off these cell phones. Don't live on these cell phones. Look after your body. Your body's a holy temple. You've got to be in shape to contribute to this country. I'm not an American, but I'm 81, and I work every damn day of the year except for three weeks. So I still contribute more than most people of 30 years of age. If you went to the gym today... I would beat eighty percent of the thirty-year-olds in a gym. <laughs> I know you would. Very important. I yeah. know you. You would. I, I was in the gym this morning, and one of the first things I thought about was, I bet, I bet, Mister Player would be telling me to to pick those those weights up one more time, get one more set in on every everything I'm doing, since you you just never slow down. <laughs> and also the eating. I mean, the schools don't teach us. They're not teaching. I went to Capitol Hill to speak to. Uh, congressmen and senators about exercise in school. They're taking it out, they said. We're not adding it. We're taking it out. I mean, so sad. We've got to teach children about exercise. We've got to teach children about eating. America's got the best food in the world, 
and the worst eaters on the planet, and you're going to have, listen to this, a hundred million people with diabetes in 40 years' time. There will be no such thing as health care in 50 years' time. Governments will not be able to afford it. Right. Listen to what I said. <laughs> well, let me go back to the horses because you know you talk about this role that it played in your own fitness, in your own health, and your own well-being during your career. But when you said you were going into the breeding business to, to, to breed racehorses, did your fellow players, did any of them say, hey, Gary, you're crazy. What are you doing? <laughs> no, no, I think everybody's got respect for what a person's passion is. Um, uh, no, I never ever had that. Arnold Palmer visited my ranch, Jack. Nicholas comes frequently. He loves my ranch. In fact, Jack Nicholas and I own racehorses together. We own a, um, a one racehorse, a mare, a female together, which we continuously get little babies. And uh, so he comes to my farm a lot. No, a lot of golfers actually visited my ranch and couldn't believe it because there's no pollution. It's an incredible climate. You have 100, 124 species of birds. And when people see me talking to birds and calling them and they come and see me, they, they don't believe their eyes what they're seeing. So it's a very different life. It's a, it's a life of great quality. And the water is in the top three waters in the world. And we have all our own vegetables and fruit and our own eggs. No, 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 no uh, antibiotics in the chickens. No steroids in the meat. No hormones in the pork. And that, to me, is important because one out of every two men now is getting cancer. And it's no surprising when you think the way we eat. You mentioned uh, players visiting you um, on your ranch uh, where, where you breed horses. You mentioned the, the late, great Arnold Palmer, who we just lost. I know he was a dear friend of yours. Are there any interesting stories about um, perhaps his visit to, to see you? Or, and, and did you put... Did you put Arnold to work? Like, I, I imagine you just saying, hey, it's five in the morning. Get up. We're going to lay we're going to lay stones all day. <laughs> no, but but Arnold came uh, to South Africa and Jack and we went to the game reserves together. We went down the gold mines together. I'll never forget Arnold Palmer. We went down 8000 feet and then we came up and we went into the room where they were pouring the gold, where there were billions of dollars of gold. And they had these gold bars, and the guy said, anybody who can pick one of these up, because nobody ever did, he can have it. So Arnold said, give me a chance. And Arnold put his strong hands on it and picked it up. This guy nearly had a heart attack. <laughs> but he said, <laughs> so Arnold said, don't worry, I'm not going to take it. You can keep your job, but you better be very careful what you say in the future. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's unbelievable. Uh, now, you're, 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 obviously you have a passion for... Uh, horses for breeding them, but there's an output of this in that you are raising champion racehorses, thoroughbreds. Um, I know you've won a claim. You've produced, you know, hundreds of uh, champion horses. Tell us a little bit about um, the competitive side of this business and, and how much you're driven to create the best of the best. Well, first of all, the horse industry is far more competitive than the golf industry. Um, the, the the one horse, one horse uh, like Stormcat, his name was in Kentucky, was a billionaire horse, a billionaire horse. Every time he covered a mare, they paid five hundred thousand dollars, and I know that's just it's that's what we dream of having. I've I've been breeding for for uh, for uh, let's see for about 50, uh, sixty years now, 
and I've produced some very nice horses, but I've never produced a world champion yet. Uh, it is harder to produce a world champion than get a camel through the eye of a needle. I mean, it's so competitive. You have so many people breeding with thousands of horses, and to get champions is very, very difficult indeed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, now, what are some of the keys? You've talked about being involved in the science of it. How has the industry evolved um, with the advancements of technology and science, and how do you blend that with some of the fundamentals? You talk openly about you know, the area where, where you're located, you still rely on climate, um, natural resources in the area. You, you're a big believer in the, the types of food and water you're feeding the horses are, impar- are imperative to their overall performance. But how do you blend your sort of gut instincts on what's available to you in nature versus the way that the technology has evolved to help these, these athletes develop? Well, first of all, environment is very important in an animal's life and a human being's life. Um, If you're brought up in a ghetto, it's very hard uh, to have the success that somebody's brought up with a high education. And that's why I'm so so, um, inspired in wanting to see poor people educated well and given a chance in life because I was very poor and I understand what it is. And I see what uh, our President Nelson Mandela did in South Africa, inspiring people. But first of all, I study genetics every day. And uh, you try and breed this champion. And what I do is I spend an hour a day average over the year. And I go through the entire lifespan of horses and what their traits were. Did they have a, a strong back leg? Did they have a good heart? that they, this, et cetera, et cetera. And the conclusion is, I know a hell of a lot about nothing. (laughs) Because you take an ordinary horse and you produce it, you send it to an ordinary stallion and you get a champion. I mean, the greatest horse in the world today is a horse called California Chrome down in California. His mother never won a race. (laughs) Right. And the mother never produced another really good horse. And all of a sudden, out of the blue comes the best horse in the world, and the horse is probably worth about $50 million today. Now, what a, I think the average American knows the Triple Crown. They know the Breeders' Cup. But you have produced uh, racehorses for international competitions and, and the cream of the crop across the globe. What are some of your favorite races to um, have taken part in, and, and what are some of your most cherished uh, wins? Well, we bred a horse called Broadway Flyer that won a Group 1 race. Now, a Group 1 is like winning a major championship. Yep. Uh, won a Group 1, which was uh, really uh, a pretty nice effort, out of a South African mother. But I've never had a horse in the Triple Crown. I mean, you know, getting a horse in the Triple Crown or getting a horse in the Kentucky Derby is like saying uh, you're going to get your son to play in the British Open or the Masters. The odds are... 10,000 to 1, 20,000 to 1, 50,000 to 1, that it were, 100,000 to 1, that it won't happen. Right. So, you you know, it just doesn't, it's, it's very, very competitive uh, indeed. Now, I've been to the track a number of times with my friends, with my wife. I don't think I've ever won a single dollar on a race. 
what what are some of the strategies that our listeners should think about? I mean, you're someone who clearly you understand the business, you understand what makes a champion horse. Can you give us any tips that uh, you know? Not all of us can go to the mines and lift up gold gold bullion. You know, like is there anything we should know about about the fundamentals of how to 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 look at a horse and and pick a winner? <laughs> well, I tell you, that's a very difficult thing. That's like trying to to pick the winner of the Masters or the British Open or a, a golf tournament. It's very tough. You look at the man, you look at the the horse or the man who's on form, and you look and you look at the form and you see that horse has been doing well, and uh, that's the kind of thing that you look for. But it's very very difficult. You've got to go to the ring and watch the horses parade. And have a little fun and pick out a horse that looks nice to you. You go to the races, you've got to be prepared to lose your money, have a nice day with lunch, go with your family, look at these beautiful animals, and don't expect to go there and make a fortune <laughs> because you ain't going to do it unless it's, you're absolutely lucky. Were any of your, of your uh, rivals on the course, were any of them particularly good or bad uh, at uh, the art of, uh, of picking a winner at the track? There were a lot of golfers that just loved the horse uh, races and the betting. Uh, there were a lot of them that enjoyed it. But I'm not a big gambler. I just have a little bit of fun. I uh, I don't uh, want to get into a habit of... There are three things that I've always said that I would never do. Become a gambler, a drinker, and a smoker. I, I get a great kick out of it, you know, just to get diverse for a minute. Uh you know, you see all these ads and they stop smoking in airports and they stop smoking in public places and you're not allowed to smoke here and you're not allowed to smoke there. In the meantime, they do all the adverts on alcohol and alcohol does 10 times the damage that smoking does. <laughs> alcohol, husbands come home and beat their wives and beat their children. Alcohol causes people to die in car accidents, etc., etc. Alcohol ruins your brain, it ruins your health, it ruins your kidneys, your liver. But there's nothing about saying you're not allowed, you've got to, you're, you're not allowed to drink. Where are we going? I don't understand that. Yeah, no, I, I totally hear you. And, and you, you. Earlier you talked about the, the challenges facing the horse industry. Where do you see the industry evolving in the next 10 years and where would you like it to go? It goes up and down. And if you go to the most beautiful place to breed horses is in Lexington, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. Chicago also has beautiful places. Horse racing has always been a very, very big part of Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I, I happen to love uh, Illinois because I'm a, I'm a farmer and it's a great farming state. And you think what those farmers do uh, for producing food for us is magnificent. I live right uh, by, by the way, I, I live right by the Arlington, uh, the Arlington racetrack in Chicago. We moved out there last year. And so, uh, yeah, I've been out there a few times. It's a beautiful, beautiful facility. Yeah, what a wonderful race to win that is. That's real stamina. Uh, that's a fantastic uh, place, uh, a particular racetrack. And also set up very, very nice indeed. But the, the thing is, you've got to go there uh, with your friends, you have a wonderful lunch. You're out in the and out in the open. You look at these beautiful animals parading. You watch them run, and you appreciate what an athlete they are. Do you have a favorite race in the world? Do you have, do you have a, a crown jewel that you would love to take part in, or or be? I mean, is it is it the Kentucky Derby, or is it something else that that that's overseas that that we may not be as familiar with? 
It's very similar to golf. Uh, in golf, I'd like to win the British Open and the Masters, the two most important, and in horse racing, the English Derby and the Kentucky Derby. Tell us a little bit more about that race, because I think our listeners may not be as familiar with it. What's the, what's the pageantry and the scene like? Well, for people, they should make a point in America to visit the Kentucky Derby, even if they don't know much about horses, because the atmosphere is electric. And uh, particularly when you see a horse trying to win a triple crown, but you see these magnificent horses that have turned out to be the best in the country out of, out of you know, hundreds of thousands of horses. Here are the 15 or the 20 best. And you see the atmosphere in, in, in Lexington. It's, it's it really and it's an experience to see, and people should try and make a point of going there. And, they, of course, that's, they do get great coverage on the TV as well. I've been to two Kentucky Derbies. Uh, both times I was in the infield with all of the uh, the groundlings uh, trying to trying to find a place to to see a single horse and and uh, and drinking probably way much way more than you would have been comfortable with, Mister Player. Uh, I'm imagining you you were not uh, you were not down in the infield. You've been up in the boxes during your visits, correct? Oh no no no! You see, that's where you're wrong. You see, uh, it's like people look at an athlete and they say, "Oh look, he's such a rich man," but they forget how poor he was when he started. <laughs> Like Lee, like Lee Trevino and myself, I made 30 pounds a month. That's $50 a month for three years. My parents had no money at all. I went to school an hour and a half to school, an hour and a half back. Came back, there was nobody in the house. My mother was dead. My brother was fighting in the war at 17 years of age with the Americans and the British. And my sisters at boarding school, I knew what it was to struggle. And when I first went to the Kentucky Derby, I was out in the outfield just like you were, my friend, and then I had to earn my way up. This is one thing we've got to teach people. They've got to, you're not entitled to a damn thing in life. You've got to earn your way. I wish you had been with us, because I bet we would have had a lot better seat knowing how good a shape you were in. <laughs> Before we go, you've been very generous with your time. Before we go, I want to talk about your charity work, your foundation's work. I want to start with this quote. Few men in our country's history did as much to enact political changes for the better. Mr. Player accomplished what many politicians could not, and he did it with courage, perseverance, patience, pride, understanding, and dignity. That was written by none other than Nelson Mandela about the impact that you had on South Africa. So I want to ask you, how would you characterize your lifetime's work and and mission to empower and enable um, children and the communities within South Africa to find a better life? Well, first of all, let me tell you, I've been around many, many, many politicians all around the world in my 80 years or 81 years of life. Mandela was something very, very special. He was a man that was he was full of love. He had no revenge. He had no hatred in his heart. He was the most pure man I could ever wish to meet. Full of love. Loved children. Loved animals. Loved people. And he changed our country entirely, uh, the perception of our country. And I spent a lot of time with him. And we raised very close to 20 million bucks for young black children. And every time I was around him, I cried. I could not 
prevent myself because I knew that he was in an island, Robben Island, in jail for almost 20 years in a cell that was basically 12 feet by 6 feet. Tell you, he was a very, very special man. So that in itself was a great time in my life, and now we are raising money in Abu Dhabi, in the Middle East, for uh, people that are handicapped, a gymnasium. We raise money in America. We raise money in South Africa for our, our young black children, mainly on the, edu- the theme of education and betterment of life. We've built quite a few schools. We also raise money for homeless in, uh, in London. We raise money also in, uh, in China. We raise uh, to help fight AIDS amongst the children. It's been a great joy to be involved in a sport and also where people have helped and, and donated money to improving the lives of these people around the world. It's been an absolute thrill to be able to leave the place a little better than I found it. Well, I mean, your work has been a... Your work has been amazing. Uh, we, I encourage everyone to check out GaryPlayer.com. They can learn more about your foundation, the work you guys do. They should follow you on Twitter, at GaryPlayer, or on Instagram, Gary.Player. I want to say this about Twitter. I saw you going back and forth with a few, a few trolls, a few hecklers. You were giving it to them really good. You, you are not afraid to, uh, to, to engage with, uh, with your fans and followers uh, for good or, be- or, or ill, and I, I, I commend you for it, sir. Oh, no. The one thing that... I love people. If, if people want to say something nasty about me, that's fine. I love them. I, I don't want to retaliate with, you know, you cannot fight fire with fire. Being around a man like Nelson Mandela, there were a lot of detractors as well. But uh, they just go by the wayside. There are always people. You cannot satisfy everybody. As long as you're trying, you must remember, I'm going to give you a saying that is terribly, terribly important. And I did this when people demonstrated against me being a South African. I treated them with love. And it says, the salvation of man is in love and through love. Love is the ultimate and the highest goal to which man can aspire. And that's what I try and live by. And my detractors, I want them to know I love them. I have no animosity towards them. The Chicago Cubs, my team, Joe's team, we had the best record in baseball in the 2016 regular season. Also had the best set of jammies. Manager Joe Madden once again had his team sport pajamas on a recent road trip near the end of the season, which is either a clever bit of team building or a mild bit of hazing, depending on which hashtag hot take columnist you read in the morning. And look, hazing is nothing new to sports. You know, with the NBA and NHL coming back this month, you're going to see footage of rookies carrying bags off the team buses or Instagrams where a freshly minted millionaire gets stuck with a $20,000 dinner bill from the vets. So today we thought we'd break down sports hazing a little bit, decide if it's cool, talk about whether it's a problem, or even kind of debate whether it's a thing at all anymore, or just a lot of hoopla and fun publicity in between the games. So Gareth, let me start with this. Ever been hazed, bro? 
<laughs> Not really. <laughs> did your so you're saying um, the, the Skidmore improv comedy troupe that you were in did that uh, make you uh, fetch the, the the bags before uh, before shows or uh, or pick up the bar tab as a freshman? Yeah, there's not a lot of that going on in my life, which is kind of what, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this. This is so purely spectator and in a time when locker room talk is being redefined um you know where does hazing sort of fit in with that i mean julie DeCaro just wrote a long article on this with i believe it was the mets who dressed their players up like a league of their own yeah um, julie DeCaro, friend of show um chicago sports columnist uh she wrote a, a really interesting piece about how maybe it's time for male sports teams to stop you know playfully dressing um dressing their their guys up like women to embarrass them because it just fuels the speculation about you know uh you know having feminine traits or qualities is a is a negative and and machismo in sports and all this other stuff which actually is an interesting take i had i had candidly never never i i what i was exactly so what i thought about having read that was huh that's a really good point. I agree with that. At the same time, I was mm-hmm. someone who produced an NFL show during the Jonathan Martin saga two years ago. I also don't think hazing is that big a deal in pro sports. And mo- I hear more bad hazing stories from high school and college bands. You know, so I, I think that's uh, the, the key point. Um, I don't have too many problems with with millionaires making other millionaires carry some luggage <laughs> right i think that <laughs> right. stuff is is funny and something that is probably regulated and monitored through you know grown adults or people close to that who can say no without repercussion the problem with hazing happens at the grassroots level when there is an entrenched uh leadership structure that does not allow someone to decline to take part if they don't want to, or where there are just not the monitors in place to make sure that things don't get way out of control. I think I agree. I think sports hazing at the high school level is where you probably are more likely to hear about physical abuse, sexual humiliation, sometimes sexual abuse. Um, and that could be anything from the football team to cheerleaders to, um, Yep. Any you said marching band. I mean, I was in the marching band, and we can talk about that later. But uh, you know, there there's mild hazing there, but they had stamped most of that out by the time I was there. It's an interesting conversation where, okay, Julie, like I agree with that point. That was a fair one, and it's something I had never considered before. But I do think, even with having seen what went down in the Dolphins locker room a couple of years ago, I am I, I kind of want to say this. Like I am refreshed that I don't think this is that big a deal in professional sports. And I think that's kind of cool, <laughs> you know, like, okay. So once every 10, 20 years, you have a big problem, but it just doesn't seem like that big a deal. So I think it's been stamped out. I think number one, athletes are a more insular. It's us versus the world mentality. And when it's, when it's us as a group, I don't think there's a huge incentive to, you know, divide the group. I also think organizations have a lot invested in these guys and they don't want to be risking their health, risking their happiness, risking their relationships with you dumb hazing pranks. 
And that said, like the Joan Madden stuff, mm-hmm. I, th- I don't even think of that stuff as hazing. I think of that as just funny publicity stunts that they do to to show that we're a young team and we're having fun. It's the stuff like it's the stuff like um, you know rookie talent shows and uh, rookies being strapped with the bill, and sometimes you hear about uh, or they get stiffed on a gambling uh, debt that they were doing on the team plane, and you hear you hear some griping internally about oh the rookies all pissed off at the veteran. That kind of stuff can sometimes cause some consternation. Again, I I think of that more as as sort of an agreement between consenting adults versus hazing. I think is the 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 structure of the of the institution is forcing you to endure something against your will under the guise of you know morale building or team building or we're going to break you down and make you stronger and i do agree that most pro sports have stamped out the most harmful of that type of hazing now julie's point is well taken if there are things they do that might send a, a, a negative message to segments of the fan base uh we should you know we should continue to analyze that on a case by case basis uh but i do feel more encouraged at the pro level i don't know joe is this something you've ever thought about or or seen or or put two and two together on um, honestly, I don't have a ton of experience with it. I know, um, I swam in high school. And so the closest experience I had to this was there was kind of a common understanding that, um, uh, if you were a freshman on the swim team, you at some point during the swim season, we're going to get a swirly, um, which is <laughs> right. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty looking back on it. It feels pretty tame, but I remember like in the first few weeks of going to practice, Honestly, every time when we would change before or change after practice, it was like nerve wracking. Like, when is it going to happen? And, you know, you see like a bunch of seniors run and grab one of your friends and they like take them in and give them the swirly and flush it. And you're like, oh, my God, it wasn't me this practice. And then at the end of my freshman year swim season, I had not been given a swirly. And Hmm. as weird as it may sound, I was like, oh, man, like I didn't. I didn't get sort of like inaugurated into, I mean, you know, I, I wasn't like sort of inducted into this group. I like, like, like I said before, it's a fairly tame thing. Um, you do realize they only swirl the ones they love. Sorry, buddy. Exactly. <laughs> I know. And that, that's why I never came back. Um, to, to your point about the Cubs thing. Um, you, you, the first thing I thought was like, the reason the Cubs thing is, is nice or, or, or is, is great is it's the same reason Jimmy Fallon gets guests to do things on his show. It's because he's doing it with them. It's like, we're all doing this together. Right. Um, like if it's, if it's the group partaking, if there's maybe like a common understanding of like, this is, you know, yeah, we all, every rookie is going to pay a $20,000 dinner bill. Um, I think it, it gets gray when it's, you know, every freshman on the high school swim team has been swirlied. It's a, it feels I, I, I don't know. Now, now I'm like even doubting myself. It, it feels like we're all sort of in this. It's kind of this common understanding, but where do you draw that line? I think the other thing, where do you draw the line between like hazing and what people would call like bullying? Like, right. Was like the Jonathan Martin thing, like hazing or was that like, like bullying? Um, and look, this is, I, I, I don't know. It's also weird to use the word bullying. Bullying feels very much like a schoolyard term. Like it feels weird to use it with adults, but it's like it it's a it's real. So I don't know. Yeah, and look, this is I mean, abuse of power happens yeah, this a is lot. Coming, 
This is so. coming up because we are talking a lot these days about air quotes locker room talk, locker room culture. Can that be a thing? And Joe, I'm I'm yeah. amazed that you were getting swirlies in high school sports because you were in you were in high you must have been in high school in like we're not talking ninety four here. You must have been in high school in like two thousand eight. Uh, I graduated in 08. So this would have been 2004. Yeah. Fall of 2004. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty late. I feel like Oops. I was in, I was in high school in the late nineties and I feel as though they had, cause I was in the marching band and we, most of that hazing had been stamped out completely. Now I was in a college fraternity that hazing not stamped out. <laughs> that was, <laughs> uh, that was yeah. uh, something I'm definitely not proud of. But I think in sports at the high school level, they had worked really hard to eliminate a lot of that stuff. But you still hear stories about it happening. And that's why I agree with you, Joe. There is a fine line. And look, we're not trying to sound all nanny state about it. You Listen to Joe. He just said, I, I didn't mind the idea of getting my head shoved in a gross public toilet, which I would still be in the shower, Joe, like trying to wash off that. It was space. like, yeah, it, it was terrifying every practice. And then at the end of the year, I was like a little bit like, oh, man. Like, I don't know. It's a, it's a weird holding those things at the same time is a little strange, but, which explains why your senior um, year, why you swirlied everyone every week, Joe, right? <laughs> exactly. Every person I met, I just, I just threw toilet water at you them. became the ogre, like nerds. <laughs> I'm <just swirly. laughs> Homer goes back to college style. Um, I do like that. This is coming up though at a time when, Look, I think this is all part of a larger cultural conversation that's happening right now about decorum and how we treat each other. And I think that's a good thing. Um, Julie's article that inspired this came about a week before Donald Trump went in front of 60 million people and said locker room talk could explain away a lot of his actions. And I, I also I did like, again, as we're talking about sort of the civilized nature of professional locker rooms, how many professional athletes stood up and it was like, bro, that ain't any locker room I've ever been in. Because yeah. um, I have spent a lot of time around athletes in locker rooms. And look, I'm not saying that I would publish all of it or tell it everything I've heard to my mother. But at the same time, I've never heard anyone saying, so when I go up to a woman, I like to sexually assault them or anything close to that. And so I do think... As we talk about how hazing in professional sports isn't as big a deal as you might think and athletes leading on locker room talk, it's it's refreshing to look at sports and be like, yeah, it's a bunch of guys who work hard. Some of them are really good. Some of them are kind of bad. Wouldn't want to hang out with them outside work. Kind of like your office, everyone in America. <laughs> so, right. um, look, that, so yeah, it's been cool. That, that's something people want will – fight against and i think the people who defend what trump allegedly did which is you know you know potentially indefensible yeah which is potentially like sexual assault to people who are in a subordinate position to him from a business perspective which is you know if true horrifying and if and if it's being frittered away as locker room talk is is equally troubling but i do think there's a there's a there's a mentality there's a psychology of hazing that is that is real. And, you know, look, I shaded to, I'm not going to go too in depth, but like I was part of fraternity and a fraternity that I consider to be good guys, friends with to this day. And the hazing was intense. Like, I mean, 
a couple dudes sent to the hospital with alcohol poisoning. I mean, staying up for 30 straight hours and working and getting food dumped on you and going to someone's house in the afternoon and being told, okay, pledges, like you guys can't leave until this fifth of Jack is gone. And you're like, but we've got, we've got, you know, tests coming up and no one, and, and dudes are just chugging alcohol. Like that's scary behavior, but it's shocking how many people that, you know, when, when you say, Hey, let's tone this down. Um, will say no way, because that's what I had to go through. Um, why would I make it easier? And that's where I think is the strangest thing about locker room talk and or locker room hazing. And the hardest part to, to get rid of is if you go through it and you survive it, or it, it, there, there can be this psychological imprint made that's like, well, yeah, I survived it. And it, and it either made me stronger or then why would these guys, why should these guys have it any easier than me? And that's what I think is has been, I think, eradicated from the professional level because the modern athlete has probably not gone through intense hazing, so they don't know any better. It's like where this mm. is creeping into the high schools and colleges and where it's been around for 20 years, those seniors, those older people, even those coaches, if, if you've gone through hazing, you are more likely to laugh it off than if you have... Um, only heard about it and you're seeing it for the first time. And I know that for sure because I, I took part in hazing yeah. on both sides. And I was a vocal person that says we should tamp this down and we should eliminate this and we should get rid of hard alcohol from it or make life easier. And very, very sensible people, people who I really respect who are successful professionals, uh, have ha- would say to me, oh, come on, dude, you're just being a wet blanket. Yeah, I, I just... Um... I don't know. This all feels like progress to me. The fact that a bunch of older guys can say this is locker room talk. And then uh, if a bunch of younger guys are saying, no, it isn't, please stop saying that. You know, that, that is to me, that's a sign of progress. That's a good thing. And that like, let look the 70 year old man, statistically speaking, will be dying soon and we will get rid of a lot of that mentality with it. And I just think that in a cool way, you can look into professional locker rooms right now and see real cultural progress in a lot of ways. And this is just one of them. Gareth, I think you made a good point about, um, I I was reading a little bit before we got on here about, you know, hazing in sports. And it was one of the comments that this writer made was like after all like an nfl locker room and NBA locker room like it is at the end of the day it is a workplace um and so there's just like this different mentality of like is um you know going out after you know for drinks after work and like you know giving the intern like you know making him carry your bag or buy you a drink like is that accepted or is like verbal and like mental like abuse like accepted in your office? It's like it, it, it's sports. I mean, there's a whole nother discussion to be had about like sports culture and like the culture in the NFL or, or any any sort of sports locker room. But um, that, that idea of like think of this like your office, think of this like a workplace. And that doesn't exist, Brad, at college or in high school when it's like that's you're right. young and you're free and you're living on your own and you're pumping full of hormones and. Um, it's just an interesting thing to think about, like how, um, how you're, we're talking about sort of two different environments in which this does or does not occur as well. Yeah, Joe, because it when you're at an NFL workplace and there's a, an issue, it's not a locker room issue anymore. It's an HR issue. 
it's a potential public issue because of the 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 company in this case the NFL team is taking hundreds of millions of dollars from taxpayers <laughs> you know i mean oh yeah it's not it's <laughs> right. not what it was in the 60s and that's where i think i go back to but there are people who will say but it should be and that's what i think you go to the trump stuff after the trump made yeah. the, after trump made the comments about locker room talk in the second debate chris conley a member of the chiefs uh, a guy we've tweeted about a lot because he's done some Star Wars fan films, which I highly recommend Googling. Um, he, <laughs> he was saying, I wor- he said, I work in a locker room and that's not locker room talk to me. And I think he got a lot of flack from people. And I think part of the reason he got flack from people was because he said, I work in a locker room. And I do believe that a lot of folks don't want sports to be work for these guys. They think, Oh, 100%. They think, well, even think about... Sorry, go for it. No, they think sports is a special place in our larger culture that has a special meaning that that has projected values that that tap into something different than what they deal with every day. And there's a majestic part of that for people that is ruined when they think about a dude strapping a rookie with a twenty thousand dollar bill having to go through an HR training. And not a cool mystical one like humans and resources, a la the forty-eight hour film festival. We <laughs> I mean, even think about like how college football has changed. I mean, you know, I like in, probably in your lifetime or like in the last however many years. Like, can you imagine, you know, players on you know any sort of major team on on Alabama like getting caught in sort of like a, a hazing ring or like teasing their players or something like? You're you're a national brand. You're you're you know your right. your career is worth potential. You know what I'm saying? Like your career is worth potentially millions of dollars. It's like imagine college football hazing like 50 years ago. I'm sure I'm sure it's sort of shifted the way of professional sports. Where it's like there's just too many eyeballs on this. But it's a cool it's a cool thing to put the microscope on. Of like you know if this were if he if this were explained away with different language without those words locker room talk would we be talking about this right now probably not and a lot of people probably lebron james wouldn't be interviewed after practice saying like that's not locker room talk like the fact that he used that language to sort of explain things away has just opened up this pandora's box of like wait is this like you saw i saw so many news clips of people being like would your, does your husband talk like that? And you know, well, I, I don't know. Like I, it, it just, I feel like it's opened this people's minds to like, wait a second, what is going on here? Like, is this a legitimate explanation or like, I don't know, to Gareth's point, like, is there this sort of divide of young versus old or, or a personal divide? Like Brad, you're describing, I just find it very interesting that this sort of explaining things away attempt has just kind of started to knock down some of these walls. Yeah, and look, I don't know. Last but not least, Joe, Adam's actually in your office. Adam, come on out. Get Joe to the bathroom. We're going to give him that swirly finally. (laughs) (laughs) Better late than never, Joe. Better late than never. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, you know, I can say thanks. And with that, why don't we uh, flush, (laughs) flush ourselves out of this conversation, too? We will be back with distractions right after this. And we are back. Uh, As you know, when athletes do really interesting things, we love it. We talk about it. But a lot of the media and trolls hate it. 
and label it a distraction. That's crap because all life is is work and the things that distract us from work. So we take time at the end of every show to tell you what's been distracting us these days. Joe, why don't we start with you, buddy? Sounds good, Brad. Um, I like the trend that you've had at times of shouting out fellow podcasts. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to do that. I'm going to shout out a podcast that uh, I've very much enjoyed and that a good friend of mine uh, makes. It's called Based on a True Story. Um, it's made by a friend of mine, Moose. He goes by Moose. Um, and this is sort of his attempt to share this sort of um, story from his childhood about when he, I think he was maybe 17, um, his parents sent him to this sort of correctional camp, sort of camp for troubled youth. You could sort of describe it in Oregon. He's from Chicago originally. Um, and his parents like flew him out there and it's his telling of this experience. Um, and Moose is like this incredibly intelligent, really dry humor, just like really quick witted, funny guy. Uh, and it turns out he's a great storyteller. So I would recommend people go check this out. They're short little episodes. They're maybe 10 to 12 to 15 minutes. I think there's seven parts out right now. Um, and if we get enough bandwidth here, we could have him uh, push the next episode because I think it's been like two months or something. He's he's behind. Um, but it's just a it's just a great story. I love the guy um, and I wanted to give him a shout out and just say that I've been eating it up because it's awesome. So based on a true story podcast, um, I think his Facebook page is Boats, B-O-A-T-S podcast um, by Moose. Check it out. I'm in. Yeah, I'm in too. Uh, Gareth, what's your your distraction? Um, my distraction from now through probably mid-November will be the election. It is probably was going to take up all of my free time. I was going to bed the other night and I was just like laughing at tweets I had read throughout the day and was unable to sleep because of it. Um, I just I was thinking about another tweet recently where a guy was like. I think he's a writer for John Oliver, but he was just joking. He was like, why can't I sleep as I'm beaming pure information into my eyes from eight inches away? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And that's kind of how I've been. I find all of this fascinating. Uh, Brad's recommendation of the Washington Post President's History Podcast um, is fantastic, and I'll echo it here. But it's got my brain working just purely on how history will remember all of this and how this fits into history. And I think a lot of times in the recent past, we've seen historical moments or we've seen things that like, well, historically speaking, this isn't that much of an aberration. And I I actually think that this election is pretty weird, even in historic terms. So, yeah, that's uh, it's just an ongoing distraction and I will revel in it. It's fascinating. So I want to talk elections too, but maybe let's throw it back in the old days. Uh, if you guys watch Frontline at all, Joe Gareth, do you guys watch that? Yes, I do not. PBS documentary uh, series. Very good. They occasionally do. They've done presidential specials. So like long form documentaries between two and four hours about each of the modern presidents just totally packed with interesting footage, with interesting anecdotes. 
nothing that I think will blow the lid off of it for people who are, you know, voracious readers of history. So if you've read 15 books on Lyndon Johnson, this is not going to tell you anything new. But if if you're looking for a really entertaining, really interesting, uh, you know, primer on each of the modern presidents, I can't recommend these enough. Cool. I'll check them out. Frontline. All right. That is our show for this week. If you didn't like it, just remember, guys, what Malcolm Jenkins of the Eagles said about bow ties. The beauty is in the imperfections. It's in the imperfections. Look, you know the drill. Like, rate, review us on iTunes. Tell a friend about the show. Tweet at us. Give us, uh, you know, slam your own hammer to go to someone to come on our show. Uh, you know, give us ideas. Uh, find us on email, justnotsports at gmail.com or on Instagram, Twitter, Beam and all sorts of other uh, Snapchat. Uh, we're, we're, we'll be more active on that, I promise. <laughs> and uh, with that, let's end with some shout-outs. I want to give a shout-out to Gary Player, the most interesting man in the world. Loved talking to him. Was this, like, inspired talking to Gary Player? If I'm alive at 81 and I'm anywhere near um, the man he, he is, it, it will have been a good life. I want to give a shout out to Bo Wood, who uh, works with Gary, who set up set us up with the interview uh, on very short notice. So thank you, Bo, for that. Gareth, Joe, any shout outs this week? Yeah, I want to shout out my wife and daughter, both of whom celebrated birthdays within a day of each other, October 15th and October 16th, uh, particularly to my young daughter, who is now five. That is wow. crazy. So happy birthday, ladies. Dang. Joe, what are your shout outs? I just wanted to shout out Adam. We love you. We miss you. And uh, we're excited to have you back soon. Yeah. Big shout out. Speaking to Adam. of Adam. Exactly. Speaking of Adam, let's end with our usual shout outs. We will hear from Adam soon. Uh, Adam, take it away. Uh, as usual, I'd like to shout out my boy Uzi. Def Jeff. Testify. Little Swanee. Nice. Meech. Ron Mack. And my other cousin, Ron. I love those guys. Love those guys. Thank you for all you do, guys. Uh, Especially you, Meech. Really clutch this week. And uh, in the immortal words of future Hall of Famer and perpetual Renaissance man, Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers. Stay booty. Stay booty. Stay booty. Stay booty. Careful right now.